Well, good morning. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. Me too. For those of you who don't know, um, my name is Jason Coker, and I'm one of the co-ministers here as well. It's exciting to have you here with us. We're going to continue our teaching series uh, called Giving Up Toxic Jesus for Lent. We have visited a variety of different expressions of what we've been talking about as sort of toxic expressions of Jesus from the perspective that we are in Lent, which is this historical Christian time between Ash Wednesday and Easter, where many traditions in Christianity practice fasting of one kind or another. The purpose of fasting, of course, is to learn to gain control over those things that tend to control you. And it's important to understand that when we fast, we typically are fasting from things that are very good. Uh, fasting, of course, traditionally is about giving up food, giving up eating for a particular period of time. And food, of course, is quite good. Nobody would say food is bad. It's a vice that you should let go of, that you should give up, maybe like smoking cigarettes or something. No, food is something that we need three times a day in order to thrive and live well. But even that good thing, food, can become a controlling influence in our lives. This, there's a kind of uh, spirituality at the heart of this that I think is important for us to grab a hold of, this idea that even good things can become bad things when we relate to them incorrectly. And so I've introduced this idea that that can also be true of Jesus, that Jesus can be, of course, a very good thing in our life, even the, the person that we center our whole lives around. But that when we project our fears and biases onto Jesus, when Jesus begins to look more like our fears and biases, what's happened is Jesus has become an idol that then controls us in really unhelpful ways. So we're talking about this idea of fasting, these really unhealthy images of Jesus. We've talked a lot about authoritarian Jesus, about hyper-masculine Jesus. Uh, last week, Alex talked about prosperity Jesus, these sort of images of Jesus uh, that aren't good. Uh, we talked about white supremacist Jesus. Today, I want to talk to you about maybe what I think is the most difficult toxic Jesus of all, maybe the root of all toxic Jesuses, uh, and that is the anti-Semitic Jesus. Uh, Janelle and I have the privilege of being in relationship with a lot of faith colleagues in North County, uh, different expressions of Christianity and different expressions of religion. And recently, last fall, around November, we were able to attend an anti-Semitism training hosted by Temple Salel down in Encinitas. Uh, Janelle and I know the cantor and the rabbi there who are amazing people, and uh, we were able to visit the Temple Salel campus for that training. They were gracious enough to host us. And as we arrived at Temple Salel, I experienced something that I always experience when I go to a Jew Jewish synagogue. But it's something I have never experienced when I visit a church. And that is the experience of walking up to the gate and being patted down by security, or Janelle having her purse searched before we walk through a metal detector on our way in. And there's a reason why you will experience that at most synagogues that you visit. And it's because anti-Semitic violence is a very real threat for Jewish people today. We tend to think of it as something that's 
in the past that was located in Germany around World War II when this horrible thing happened called the Holocaust. But we forget that it's a very real problem today. Just three days ago, the Anti-Defamation League uh, actually published a report on anti-Semitism in the United States. And in it, they said that 2022 saw a 36% increase in anti-Semitic assaults, harassment, and vandalism in the United States. This is the highest rate of anti-Semitic incidents in 44 years. It's a 500% increase in the last 10 years alone. And it's the third time in the last four years that we've set a new record for anti-Semitic incidents in the United States. So this is a very current issue, is I guess my point. Um, before we jump into what I might have to say today, which I am sure will frustrate some of you, not because you're anti-Semitic, but because we are all, I think, as Christians, deeply enculturated to an idea that is at the heart of anti-Semitism. And I want to suggest that it's something that we need to learn to let go of. So before we do that, would you pray with me and for me just for a moment? God, we thank you for today, for this opportunity for us to gather in this space. I am struck today by the privilege that we have to walk freely into this space, relatively fearlessly. And while churches also have become conspicuous sites of violence in recent years in the United States, we as Christians really don't know what kind of hate and violence and intimidation our Jewish siblings experience. And so we pray today, God, that as we read through these passages and as we ask for your guidance, that you would help us to see things in a new light. That you would help give us a sense of purpose as Christians, that we might be able to hold the ladder In some way, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Anti-Semitism, of course, finds common justification, unfortunately, in passages that we find in Scripture. So, for example, Matthew chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. These are Jesus' central words everywhere he went. He taught what it was like to access the kingdom of God, to be in the presence of God. But often he says things that are interpreted as being anti-Jewish. For this reason, in Matthew chapter 5, he says, before he jumps into his teaching, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And just before that, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He says this before he jumps into his teaching because he knows that his teaching will be understood or rather misunderstood very easily as being anti-Jewish. So he sort of paves the way for what he is about to say. Later in Matthew 23, which is the passage I want to focus on today, he enters into some of his harshest criticism of his religious rivals. Matthew 23 says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, this is Matthew 23, verse 1, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, that is, the seat of authority in Judaism. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. This is such a famous passage that it's entered into like our everyday manner of speaking, right? Do they practice what they preach? Or maybe if you're a parent, do as I say and not as I do. These are the kinds of phrases that we often employ in order to advance ideas that we think are best but also acknowledging our own failure to live up to them. And this is really the center of Jesus's debate with the Pharisees. Later in, in, in chapter 23 are, of course, the seven woes. Verse 13, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven, for you do not go in yourselves, and when others are going in, you stop them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross sea and land and make a single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, Jesus says seven times throughout Matthew 23. So it's easy to get the idea that Jesus has a problem with Judaism. Paul also, in Galatians, has a particular problem, it seems, with Judaism when he's arguing against those Jewish Christians who seem to think that Gentiles need to practice the law. In, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says famously, he's arguing against those Jewish Christians who believe that for Gentiles, that is non-Jews, that in order to become Christians, they have to adopt all of the Jewish customs. That, that is, what to eat and not to eat, to be circumcised or not be circumcised, practicing the right holy days, all of the things that make up cultural Judaism. Paul says, if you're not Jewish, you don't have to do that. It makes no sense whatsoever. And I really wish, by the way, that those Jews who insist on circumcision would go all the way and cut it off entirely. Yeah, see, some of you get the joke. <laughs> Paul is saying, I wish these Judaizers, as he calls them pejoratively, I wish that they would castrate themselves. That's how angry he is that they want to thrust cultural Judaism onto those who are not Jewish. That kind of rhetoric gives a fairly negative perception of the people that he's talking about. In the Gospel of John, John, the follower of Jesus, the disciple whom Jesus loved, John calls himself in this Gospel, continuously refers to the Jews in an ethnic way, in a negative way. He says that the Jews were persecuting Jesus. John, of course, also refers to specific Jews in a very positive light. Nicodemus is the very best example. But John has a tendency to sort of paint with a broad brush in criticizing Jewish people. It's important for us to understand that Jesus and Paul and John, of course, were Jewish. And so when they are arguing with other Jews about what to think about Jesus and how to follow Jesus and whether or not Jesus represents the Messiah, what is essentially happening is a bitter internal argument, a, a kind of sibling rivalry. 
And if any of you have had siblings, you know that sibling rivalries can get quite bitter and harsh. Our two daughters, you've heard this story, some of you have heard this story before. I'm going to tell it again and again and again. Our two youngest daughters, Judah and Alana, are very different personalities. It's always a surprise to me when children of the same parents end up being like different human beings. It's so weird. And one of our daughters, Alana, is she does not have a high priority for like ordering things in her room. Judah, on the other hand, many of you know Judah, she works with us through SDOP. She has a very high priority for order in her life. Neither of those are right or wrong, but there is a clash at the heart of that when they shared a room. And then when we got to be a little bit older, we moved to Ohio, and we bought a house, and lo and behold, we had enough rooms for them to have their own room. And Judah was like liberated from Alana's chaos. You know, she finally had a room of her own, and she could order it exactly the way she wanted to, and she, everything had a place, and everything was in its place, and she never lost an opportunity to rub Alana's nose in it that her room was clean and Alana's was a disaster. And she would taunt and torment Alana every single day with this and sometimes offer Alana lessons in how to keep her room clean, right? <laughs> Which Alana was not appreciative of. Until one day, we came home from school and Judah went upstairs to our room and walked in and a scream emanated from the room because Alana had gone in and torn the room apart. <laughs> she just couldn't take it anymore, right? Now that is a mild sibling rivalry, rivalry compared to what my brother and I would often do to each other. We would fight bitterly. One time we got into a fight so bad that you know, I was tormenting him. He's a younger brother. I was doing one of those things where I pin him down or something and like you know, hang a loogie over his face or something terrible like that. And he had gotten big enough and infuriated enough that he reached out and he grabbed the closest sharp object he could grasp, which was a ballpoint pen, and he proceeded to sink it into my thigh. I learned to respect him a little bit more after that. <laughs> Sibling rivalries can be bitter, and that is exactly what we see happening in these passages. Something happened over the years as Christianity began to grow amongst Gentiles. Paul took Christianity, he took Judaism rather, and he sort of innovated Judaism and made it applicable to non-Jews. He said you can practice the morals and the ethics of Judaism without having to be circumcised or not eat bacon or celebrate the holy days of Judaism. And that took off like wildfire. Eventually, Christianity spread and became a majority Gentile religion. And then in the fourth century, that majority Gentile religion became the official religion of the Roman Empire. And when that happened, the fourth century Bishop Ambrose argued with the emperor at that time that nobody other than Christians should enjoy civil rights, that civil rights should be denied specifically to Jews, pagans, and other heretics on the basis that they did not worship the right God. Ambrose said this, speaking of the Jews, whom do they, that is the Jews, whom do they have to avenge their synagogue? Christ, whom they have killed, whom they have denied, 
Or will God the Father avenge them who they do not acknowledge as fathers since they don't acknowledge the Son? Ambrose's argument is we can't extend civil rights to the Jews because they have denied God entirely. And what we have here, essentially, all the way back into the 4th century, out of the mouth of a Christian bishop, are the basic ingredients of anti-Semitism today. Those ingredients are the Jewish people killed Jesus. And that is a lie. Jesus refuted Judaism. That also is a lie. And third, Christianity has replaced Judaism. And that also, I would suggest to you today, is a lie. We have not replaced Judaism. And this is sort of the heart of a kind of soft Christian anti-Semitism that says that Jesus came along and showed how Judaism got it all wrong. And that we, the inheritors of faith in Jesus Christ, somehow know their religion better than they do. And so we adopt a kind of paternalistic approach to Jews. Like somehow we are enlightened about their own faith. We are the ones who finally got it right. Because Jesus came along and revealed what was wrong with that religion. But Jesus, of course, did not deny or refute Judaism. He affirmed it. Like Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. Jesus also in Matthew chapter 5 goes on to enter into a kind of debate with his rivals where he says, again, seven times, you have heard that it was said. These are the seven antitheses of Jesus, where he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say, if you have judgment in your heart for anybody, you have committed murder. He does this again and again. He upholds the goodness of the law, but he reveals something about it, and that is namely that any of us at any time can and often do use the law to break the law. This is known as following the letter of the law but ignoring its spirit. And any good lawyer can tell you how this works. It turns out that as human beings, we have a particular genius for taking laws and twisting them to find a way around them and thereby breaking what the intent of the law was to begin with. Jesus is not refuting Judaism. He is affirming the spirit of Judaism and pointing out that there are those that he is arguing with who are hypocrites. They're using the letter of law, the law to avoid what it really intended. In this way, Jesus is not saying that there is anything wrong or broken or immoral about Judaism. He is simply saying that there are those who have ignored it. Paul agrees. Paul in Romans goes on to say that there is nothing wrong with the law. The law is good and holy and righteous, but that Christ has shown that faith is what keeps us connected to the spirit of the law. Faith is not something new that entered in with Jesus. 
Faith can be found in the amazing examples of Old Testament figures who have demonstrated what faith looks like. We see that in the book of Hebrews. What we do is we read into these passages a sense of rivalry. We read into these passages, Jesus' sayings, and Paul's, and John's. We read into them a sense of self-righteousness. We as humans deeply desire to be right, to be the best, to be the strongest. And so we take these passages that we read through a, a lens of rivalry and we use them to colonize and conquer and sometimes even kill other people. This is unfortunately much of the history of our tradition. The moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt says this that I think is helpful for illuminating how this works. He says, morality binds and blinds. It binds us to ideological teams that fight each other as though the fate of the world depended on our side winning the battle. Does that sound familiar to anybody in this room? Have you been following politics? Morality binds and blinds. It binds us into ideological teams that fight each other as though the fate of the world depended on our side winning each battle. It blinds us to the fact that each team is composed of good people who have something important to say. Now listen, if you are as ridiculously leftist as I am, that last sentence could be hard to hear. Because our ideological commitments blind us to the reality that there are good people on the other side of our disagreements. There are good people on the other side of our religious disagreements. There are good people on the other side of our political disagreements. There are good people on the other side of our ideological identity politics. Our deep commitment to moralizing these disagreements to insisting that anybody who disagrees with me is doing harm to the world blinds us from seeing the image of God in people that we disagree with. It's hard for me to hear that and it's hard for me to say that because I am as blinded by those ideologies as any of us. It turns out that Identifying ourselves with these ideological teams is deeply pleasurable. We get the same injections of dopamine by being around people who speak the same way we do and dress the same way we do and vote the same way we do as we do when we imbibe in certain substances. Those pleasure centers of our brain light up when we identify with these teams and when we see the rival teams losing. We should be deeply suspicious of this drug that is identity politics. Religion is 
deeply steeped in that. It's helpful to remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. There is none who is righteous, not even one. Now listen, I don't mean to get like all old-timey religion on you. I know that that passage has been weaponized, and some of you have been bludgeoned with it to believe that there is nothing good about you. That you are a piece of garbage. That God can't stand the sight of you and couldn't stand to be in your presence unless you are baptized in the blood of Jesus. Might I suggest that this passage is not about refuting the image of God in you that is deeply good, but rather it is the gateway to empathy. That when you accept the fact that you might not be right all the time, and believe me, when I say that, it hurts. <laughs> but when you embrace the idea that you might not be right all the time, you create the possibility that somebody other than you might be right instead. That same moral psychologist Jonathan Haidt said that empathy is an antidote to self-righteousness. That our ability to see through the eyes of another human being, to identify with their suffering, to truly understand the argument that they're making that we find deplorable, is where we begin to reconnect with each other in a way that is healing. We haven't been very good at that as Christians. But that's not the whole story of Christianity, fortunately. Christianity is a deep and rich tradition of unspeakable beauty and depth and goodness if we are willing to see it. It's full of amazing human beings, moral exemplars. Some of my favorite, St. Francis of Azizi, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who fought against the Nazis from prison, Dorothy Day, the great Catholic worker who worked tirelessly for the poor, Martin Luther King Jr., of course, who fought not just for civil rights for people of color, but before he was assassinated, made it his purpose in life to achieve economic equality for poor people in the United States. Bernice Reagan Johnson, the civil rights activist and songwriter, and Reverend Troy Perry, the Pentecostal Southern Baptist preacher who came out as gay and had the audacity to believe that that wasn't a sin, Christianity is full of a, an amazing breadth and diversity of human beings who have demonstrated goodness that's hard to believe and understand. In this sense, Christianity, and this is where I will lose some of you, and that's okay. Just remember, I could be right. It's possible. <laughs> In this sense, Christianity is no different than any other religion. There is an enormous amount of goodness and beauty and depth alongside a lot of flaws and failings. It is possible. It is possible to be a Christian 
and not have an attitude of superiority towards Jewish people or Muslim people or Hindu people or Sikh people or Wiccans or, God forbid, atheists. It's possible. It's possible to be a Christian and value those differences, to see that other people who think differently about the world, experience the world differently, come from different cultures and different ideologies, might have something genuinely good to offer. It's possible to be a Christian and learn from other faiths. It's possible. I love how Barbara Brown Taylor calls this holy envy. She writes about being a Christian and seeing in other religions the beauty and the goodness and the rituals that will never be hers. In this sense, one of the ways that anti-Semitism expresses itself is not just in hatred or in violence, but also in the weird fetishizing of Judaism that some Christians do. And this is why, for example, we do not and will not, for as long as I am a pastor here, ever have a Christian Seder. Because the Seder is a Jewish ritual, not a Christian one. And if you are lucky enough to be invited by a Jewish friend to a Jewish Seder, please say yes. Because first of all, it's beautiful, and second of all, there's a lot of wine. <laughs> but when we appropriate the Seder and try to make it our own, we're doing what colonizers have always done. We are saying this good thing actually belongs to us. Barbara Brown Taylor talks about seeing the beautiful rituals and beliefs and ethics and morals of other religions and talks about this as holy envy. And I want to end just by sharing this quote from her book, Holy Envy, which I highly recommend. She says, It was not until I began meeting people of other faiths in their most sacred spaces that I learned how bruised some of them were by Christian evangelism. Worshippers at Hindu temples returned to their parking lot after one of their major festivals to find Christians by their cars with pamphlets demeaning their holiday. Muslims were used, were used to Christians saying malicious things about the Quran. Native Americans were tired of being asked what God they prayed to. The shared consensus is that Christian evangelists are not very good listeners. They assume they are speaking to people with no knowledge of God themselves, they're disrespectful to other people's faiths. So the reason I, I think anti-Semitism is the original sin of Christianity is because it is the original manifestation of an attitude of supremacy and superiority. We think we understood their religion better than they did, and so we have taken their place. And you can find that essential move, that essential arrogance at the heart of all of the toxic Christianities that we have talked about. The authoritarian Jesus, the hypermasculine Jesus, the white supremacist Jesus, the prosperity Jesus, all of these are expressions of 
exerting my power and my superiority over another human being. Yeah, you don't have to do that. We don't have to do that. There's nothing wrong with being Christian. It is a deeply good and beautiful tradition. If I didn't believe that, I wouldn't be one. And we live in a world where you get to choose now. We live in a world where you can let this tradition go if it no longer seems good to you. But I find that it is an incredibly beautiful and diverse expression of faith, as long as we don't use it as a weapon. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for today, for how these words of scripture challenge us and stretch us. We ask that you would teach us how to engage in the debate around what is good and right and true, just like Jesus did. That we can, like Jesus, take a stand on the things that we believe in without demeaning or erasing other people's cultures or identities. We ask most of all that you would teach us in that debate, in that posture, to have enough empathy and humility to learn from those people that we disagree with. So that together we might be all transformed into something new. By your grace, we pray this in Jesus' name. All right, everyone, so we've got some fun ways to get involved, okay? If you like what's happening here, there are amazing ways to take it outside of the church, right? Because that's really where all the fun happens, too. So the first way to do that is community groups. Those are happening now. I've already heard a lot of you coming in talking about, oh, it's so good to see you last Friday. Oh, it's so good to see you Thursday. That's really what happens there. You get to take these conversations deeper to really get to know people in a new way so check out the website there's a lot of groups all over the city and we're really excited about that next is our book club our book club happens every uh first thursday of the month and our book for this month is welcoming the stranger justice compassion and truth in the immigration debate so this is a great book talking about uh, immigration in a compassionate uh, Christian lens that can really help us kind of unpack and understand how we can actually contribute and do something to that important topic. And last, uh, this is coming up very soon, April 2nd, Transgender Day of Visibility Celebration. So this is happening actually really close to here at Heritage Park. I don't know if you're involved in it. I know uh, Katrina is, who led worship last Sunday, which is really exciting. And it's happening really after church, 11 to 3 p.m. So we could all just kind of walk over there together, celebrate, hang out, have some food, listen to the entertainers. So consider that April 2nd as well. And uh, yeah, I think before head out today, one thing that really had me thinking about Jason's sermon was this idea of not being a good listener, right, when it comes to these topics. 
And um, I realized I was sitting here thinking about my own childhood. I had a uh, Jewish friend who was my best friend. He always came over for Christmas and he was always super excited. And you know, it was like a great day for both of us and how fun it was. And I got to tell him all about everything. I was realizing sitting here, I never once really asked him about Hanukkah, his own traditions, you know, what it meant for him. And so I'm curious if maybe this week we could all just get curious, right, about people with other faiths, other traditions, no traditions at all, and just ask questions. Get to know what is it about their God that they love or what is it about their tradition or no God at all, because I guarantee it will bring you deeper into your faith if you let it. So that's, I think, the invitation for me and maybe if you want for you too. So I hope you enjoyed the service today. May the peace of God be with you. Amen.